In our last podcast, we talked about some of the recent events in the Catholic Church, those disturbing and horrific revelations of a long-time pattern of child abuse by certain priests and then the cover-up. We also spoke about Willow Creek Community Church and a similar kind, at least, of cover-up in that situation. Certainly nothing like the underlying problems there. Nevertheless, we took those two illustrations and began to talk about power in the church and how where the church can go astray when we try to use secular ideas of power. I'd just like to take those same two events that are going on in our world today and look at it from a more inside the church view. I want to tie it into some ideas about sin and repentance. Let me kick it off this way. As I read the Old Testament and I read about David's failure with Bathsheba, as he looks down on his kingdom and he sees this beautiful woman and he has her husband killed and so that he can cover up the fact that he has slept with her. And then, of course, he is found out. And so David has sinned against and offended a lot of people in that situation. But in the Psalms, he says this, speaking to the Lord, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And I've always thought that was interesting because it brought that vertical dimension into these relationships. He hasn't just sinned against Bathsheba, of course, her deceased husband, whom he's had basically murdered. He also has sinned against God. We'll move to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking to the Jews, saying, basically, you are are light to the world, and you have the truth of God, and you're supposed to be influencing the nations. But along about verse uh, 24, he says this. He says, those of you who teach uh, not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Those of you that teach not to worship idols, do you rob temples? And then he says this, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So once again, picking up this theme that it's not just the other people that are involved in this, that there's some sense that when we fail, we're dragging God out on parade in front of the Gentiles. What, what do you think about that? What will be really interesting to see in public, you know, very public scandals like this, and by no means is what's happening at Willow Creek or what's happening in the Catholic Church isolated to those two arenas. I mean, this stuff sadly happens in the church all the time. The What makes this so prominent is it's not every day that you see a pastor who's been accused of what Bill Hybels has been accused of show up on the front page of the New York Times. Right. I mean, this is where that verse comes to your mind. Literally, you know, the Gentiles, the secular culture is blaspheming the name of God because of what you've done. Usually it's much more local. It's in a right. small community or something like that. But the thing I really identify with in this and the thing and the reason why I really want to talk about this is we all know this feeling. This is just going to give us a a big picture of how this plays out. So, for example, we we have all been responsible for something like this. I mean, this is just the nature of being human. Every Christian is sinful, both past and present and in the future, we are sinful. And I can think of a time when I was in college, I was running this ministry that was a worship ministry. And part of the great thing about this worship ministry was it was in the dark. And so, right. in theory at least, nobody really knew who was in the band. Of course, yeah, everybody, everybody does know who's in the band. <laughs> but 
I was playing intramurals. I think we're playing team handball. And I am in, in sports to this day. I've gotten better, but I am a trash talker at heart. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I am the Ocho Cinco of OSU C-League intramurals. And I love to talk noise while I'm playing. And so I was, you know, talking to these guys and things started to get, you know, revved up a little bit. And as I was kind of walking to our side of the court, one of the guys says loudly, everybody can hear this, aren't you the guy that leads overflow? (laughs) And I was just paralyzed at that moment because I realized now, not only had I done something that in my heart I knew I probably shouldn't do, right? now I've hurt my witness. Yes. Now I've just discredited the ministry, and not just the ministry, but more importantly, now I've discredited God right. in some way to these people that I have been charged with reaching for the gospel. Yes. And when that thought comes into your mind, you're convicted about the fact not just that you've sinned, but that your sin has implications for the sake of the gospel. Right. And so when we look at something like what Bill Hybels has done, what you know has happened in the Catholic Church, on a huge scale, the name of God is being blasphemed because of their sin. The purpose of God in our country, at least temporarily, at least from a human standpoint, is being hurt by what these people have done. Yes. Now, we don't believe for a second that this caught God by surprise or, you know, that he's not going to work this according to his will. Like, I'm not trying to sit here and say that, you know, they have thwarted the plans of God. What I am trying to do is take seriously the biblical command to be holy. Yes, and uh, the passage that comes to mind, obviously holiness is all through our New Testament, is talking uh, several places in the New Testament. It says, basically, live in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, you have been set apart as a Christ follower. You're not set apart to be perfect, but live in a manner that is worthy of that calling. And that's something that we're all called to. Some people visibly fail. Others of us invisibly fail. Nevertheless, I think your point is that we're all called to that. And when we don't do it, in some sense, we are holding up God to ridicule among the nations. Yeah, if you look at the way that we usually treat sin in a in the way that we interface with the culture, we have this movement within Christianity where, you know, one of the lobs that's consistently thrown at Christians is, well, you guys are hypocrites. Right. You guys don't practice what you preach, and there's ample evidence for that. You know? Sure. And usually our response is something like, well, everybody's a hypocrite. You know, okay. we're not perfect. We're sinners too. You know, we're just like everybody else. And you know, we just have, have been forgiven by God. And if that's where you stop, right, then sooner or later, you really are like everyone else. Right. And what the Bible's pretty clear about, as you mentioned, is Paul commands people over and over and over again to demonstrate with their lives the grace they have been given by God. Right. And while I don't think probably very many people are intentionally living out what Paul says in Romans, should we sin so that grace may abound? Right. A lot of times our words betray that kind of mindset. We don't take sin seriously. And because of that, we don't take grace seriously. We treat grace as in it's a get, a, get out of jail free card. Right. When grace is actually costly. You know, I think about mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer's distinction in the cost of discipleship between free grace and costly grace. Right. Not only did it cost Jesus something to give us grace, it costs us something 
to receive, receive grace. grace. Exactly. You know, I, I, I think a lot of times we get forgiveness wrong. We typically think about forgiveness as if your sin is forgiven. That means that God basically just forgets what you did and nobody ever talks about it ever again. It's like, you know, with, when you do something wrong and somebody tells you like, let's just pretend like this never happened. That is not what forgiveness is in the Bible. There is no sin in the Bible that doesn't get paid for by somebody. Either you pay for it in the judgment right. or Christ paid for it on the cross. Those are the only two options. There is no option where your sin just disappears into thin air. Right. It's going to be paid for by someone, right. either you or Christ. And when we understand that that's the way forgiveness works, we understand that grace is costly. Yes. It costs Jesus something. It costs you something. And really, in the book of Romans, Paul would say it costs you everything. My old self must be crucified with Christ. Christ said the same thing when he said, if you want to come after me, take up your cross daily and follow me. It costs you nothing in the sense that it was free, and it costs you everything in the sense that you must be reborn. I think that's true. And let me throw out a Wesleyan bomb here. Uh, uh, I really like the Wesleyan idea that we respond to God's grace, meaning it's not that uh, you know free, easy grace like, oh, God forgave me, and that's the end of it. It's the idea that grace calls for a response. Now, I realize that's not the way Calvinists see it, but I like that idea because it does say that God calls us to holiness. And here's where I do think uh, Arminian, Wesleyans, Calvinists, whatever you are, if you are in Orthodox Christianity, you're going to see this idea of holiness enter in. And so when we sin, we've fallen short of holiness, and the key that comes in across the board is repentance. Yeah, repentance is something I want to kind of take from here because if you look at this situation, it's not like we can undo our own personal sin. It's not right. we can't undo, you know, what happened in Willow Creek. We can't undo what happened in the Catholic Church. But what what's the way forward? And this is where I think that Christians have a unique response to these kinds of situations. So from a secular standpoint, you we use the word repentance, but we don't really have repentance. What we have is remorse, what we have is sorrow, what we have is getting caught. You know, we have this really funny culture of apology in America right now. So if you violate uh, some kind of PC norm, now what you'll see is, you know, celebrity says this, tweets this, this is dug up from their past, you know, them doing something that now is really, really, you know, out of step and frowned upon. What do they do? They go to Instagram or they have a video or they hold a press conference where they fall all over themselves. And usually they don't even really apologize for what was wrong. They apologize that my remarks were taken that way. Or I I apologize that it had this kind of effect on somebody. Or I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said. It's rare that you see someone actually apologize for just being a horrible person. Like (laughs) I have not seen that in a press conference where somebody says, I'm sorry that my heart is actually just evil. And I did something out of the, out of the evil nature of my heart. And that's not who I'm called to be. Exactly. You don't see that. And even more rarely than that, do you see genuine biblical repentance, which is turning away from your old sin and pursuing the call of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what biblical repentance is. It's not just a change of mind. It's a change of habit. It's a change of lifestyle. It's something that comes from being reborn, being recreated into a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. This is something that only Christians have. And you see Paul talk about this. He says that worldly grief produces death. Because no matter how many times you apologize for something, you really can't change what happened. Right. But godly grief, you know, godly repentance produces the fruit of repentance, at least to life. Life. Because exactly. in God's economy, actually sin can be redeemed. And that's the key idea is to me that that we bring, that Christ brings to the world is God can take something bad, the sin, and he can redeem even that. But it can't be redeemed in the three... There are really three ways. See what you think about this. I think there are three ways in our world that you see people deal with, quote, sin, offense, whatever you want to call it. Number one, and everyone agrees this is evil. Even secular people agree that let's use our power to suppress it. Whether you're Bill Clinton intimidating and paying off women who've made accusations against you or our current president and his trials, or unfortunately, the Willow Creek elder situation of basically, let's try to silence those who are criticizing us. Certainly the Catholic Church, that's, if it's possible, that's an even greater outrage, perhaps, than the sexual molestation, which hard to say, but the fact that it was covered up and just plastered over with power. So that's one way that everybody agrees with evil. The second way is the non-apology apology apology Mm -hmm. that you just talked about. And that is, I will uh, stand up and say some words that say, I regret that you were offended by my remarks. I certainly didn't mean to do that, etc. That's kind of the pro forma. Let's get past it. I've done the ritual. But the truly remarkable thing is simply to own an action and repent. This is not the man I'm called to be. The Holy Spirit will empower me. And I think that's actually the only one of those three that can heal the effects of sin. We do believe that in these situations that God, who is infinitely wise, wiser than we are, somehow will bring healing out of these situations. And it's hard to even say that. It's hard to even put yourself in the mindset of someone who's been abused and then say, Somehow, some way, God's going to heal this. Right. You know, we can't fathom that, and that's that that feeling that we have, that resistance to that kind of statement, should remind us of just how mind blowing the grace of God actually is. That from a human standpoint, there is no way in 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 anything that you do that you could heal a situation like that. There's no way. But in the scope of eternity, in the scope of God's power and wisdom, somehow, some way. He can heal even the most grievous wounds. Right. So as Christians, what we're banking on in situations like that is not the absence of hypocrisy. Exactly. To go back from the beginning, we're not banking on the fact that there will never be a moment where the nations mock the name of God because of the actions of Christians. What we hope is there will never be a moment where God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles that isn't actually triumphed over because of the brokenness of Christians in their hypocrisy, in their sin, in their shortcomings, in the way that, you know, I think the thing that's the, the hardest about the Willow Creek situation is not only was it covered up, it hasn't even been resolved yet. Right. There's been no 
brokenness. This, at, to this point, there is nothing different about this situation than there would be a Fortune 500 company who's just trying to ride out the right. PR battle. The distinct thing that Christians bring to the table when there's a matter of public sin or private sin is brokenness. What does it look like to truly be broken? And part of it is what you brought up at the beginning. Psalm 51 is clear. David was not broken because of what the Israelites thought about him. Right. He was not broken because of the looks, you know, that people gave he's each other at, at, you know, Uriah's funeral. I mean, right. he's broken because he knows that he sinned against God. Exactly. And that that is, everything pales in comparison to that. That's true brokenness. Uh, that's a powerful point. And it, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump on a soapbox and hit one of my pet peeves for a minute. I hear this statement that, well, you know, we're all hypocrites and we're all sinners. And that's halfway true. But I don't like it because it levels the playing field, meaning there are no difference. That's not true. Here's the difference. The difference isn't, as you just said, that Christians are not hypocrites. Christians don't sin. So are we all sinners? Yes, but there are two kinds of sinners. There are sinners who have repented in godly sorrow, and there are unrepentant sinners. And that's what makes all the difference. Well, last week, you asked me an interesting question. Your question was this. If we sent you for an all-expense-paid vacation, which means we're not paying anything because we're sending you to a desert island. So you're on this desert island alone for an indeterminate amount of time. And the question is, what five books would you take with you? With this proviso, I'll give you the same conditions you gave me. There's a Bible there. Uh, English, Greek, Hebrew, everything you could want. The collected works, of course, of John Calvin and uh, Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon. So you have that basic library there. What five books would you take with you? I love this question. This is a great question. Hard question to answer. Um, Bible, obviously, is kind of the cop-out answer, but I'm glad that's there. I, I think one of the best things to do on a desert island would be to continue to grow in reading the Bible, Greek, mm -hmm. you know, learning uh, more about the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, I think that would be good. And then my number two pick would have been Spurgeon's <laughs> collected sermons. Um, I think that could power you on a desert island forever. But so in addition to that, my top five books that I would take to a desert island, I think a lot about books that have impacted me, but I also think about books that would be enjoyable to use long term. So uh -huh. these books are all books that I've actually read before, like you mentioned last week. But these are books not just that have played the biggest impact in my life. These are books that are the most enjoyable to revisit, the most useful uh -huh. um, to read again. So like you, I would definitely take Lord of the Rings. I try to read Lord of the Rings one or more times every year, have since I was in college. Um, I just don't think you can get tired of Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's it's long enough that you can't remember every detail, right. no matter how many times you've read it. But there's just so much texture in it. I love the languages. I love the cultures that Tolkien is able to create. So I would definitely take well, that. Well, you talked about the Bible and the, and the original languages. As you continue to study, you could continue to grow. So, okay, let me just put this. Lord of the Rings, have you grown from reading that? Or is it pure enjoyment? 
You know, I think Lord of the Rings is a lot of enjoyment, but there are there are definitely things in the Lord in the Lord of the Rings. And now Tolkien, you know, Tolkien and Lewis both kind of downplayed any allegorical or symbolic value. But right. you know, one of the things about Tolkien that you have to love is that his worldview, and especially the the worldview of the world he creates, is so infused with a Christian ethic. So for him, right. you know, Lord of the Rings is a is a struggle between good and evil, but not all the characters are immediately identifiable as good or evil. Very much like real life. And I love the way that he builds characters around, you know, flawed personalities. I mean, even if you look at like Gandalf, for example, and you don't see this as much in the movies, but Gandalf is a complex character. He not only is he good, but he's also a little bit conniving. Yes. So the ring has a plan that it's trying to right. enact. Obviously, Frodo has a plan that's subservient to the ring. But one of the great tensions in The Lord of the Rings is how the ring's plan and Gandalf's plan are in tension with each other. So Gandalf is working you know, these angles the entire time. Some of them noble. Some of them slightly less than noble. Right. As the whole saga unfolds, you know, his transformation and, you know, I, I think probably the ways that I've grown is the admiration you have for certain characters in The Lord of the Rings. And right. I would say, you know, probably if I had to pick a favorite character, I mean, Aragorn is such an amazing character, but probably as far, and, and he's a real pillar of nobility, but I yeah. would say Faramir is probably more identifiable as a character than Aragorn. Yes. And and Faramir and Sam are both are similar characters uh-huh. in the sense that they're both self-sacrificial. They both play a secondary role that emerges into a primary role. So yes. that there's there's a chapter, I think it's the last chapter of the See, it's, it's always hard to remember how Tolkien actually divides this. Yeah. You know, but it's it's one of the last chapters in the the, the Ring section, the Path of the Ring. Uh-huh. The section title, the chapter title is The Choices of Master Samwise. Hmm. And when he goes and decides to take the ring off of Frodo's body after, Where he's after his encounter with Shelob, right. he becomes a primary character. Right. And you get to see Sam's qualities kind of writ large for the rest of the book. And the same thing is true with, with Faramir. When Faramir is wounded in the Battle of Pelennor Fields and he goes to the House of Healing, you know, he really comes into his own right. with Aomer. And when you see that or Eowyn, when you see the speeches that he makes to her in the Houses of Healing, it reveals this deep and humble and courageous character. I mean, there's a lot that's really inspirational about that. I mean, I, I so I could talk forever about Lord of the Rings. But I could see that we need to do I, a separate it, podcast we, we, on Lord of the Rings because I want to talk about the redemptive story of Gollum, which I never saw coming first yeah. time I read it. You think Gollum gets redeemed? I, in the you know, I do. I think Gollum is... Well, let me put it this way. He is the 
means of redemption. Now that, I definitely... He's, I, he's at least the means of redemption. He is a son of perdition, if we're going to use biblical terms. I don't know that he gets redeemed, but we can, we'll record a separate episode that's on, a, We'll on have Lord to focus on it. Okay, so that's your first, Lord of the Rings, and I believe that we can both just agree, a very Christian thing to do, read Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Okay, second book, what second, would you take? Second book I'm going to take is a series, and I'm going to, I'm going to differ with you on Churchill. So I love Churchill. I'm going to take... The Last Lion instead of Gilbert's uh, series. Yeah. And for this reason, and we published a, an article on this not too long ago on the best books on Winston Churchill. Uh-huh. So The Last Lion is three volumes. It took me an entire year to read the whole thing. It's three 1,000-page volumes. I mean, it is extensive. It's not, But it's not even, you know, it's not even half as long as Gilbert's. But the thing I love about Manchester is he writes in such a way that is worthy of Churchill. To me, Gilbert is is a great historian. He, you know, it is the authorized yes. biography. It's done in in conjunction with Randolph Churchill, you know, Winston Churchill's right. son. But there's something just so magisterial about Manchester. I would agree that with that. I think the first, the you know, the forty page intros in book one and book two mm-hmm. are worth the price of the whole set. I right. mean, the way that he frames who Churchill was. There's this line in there that he says. You know, when World War II starts, Churchill finally found a stage big enough for who he had always conceived of himself to be. That is a brilliant observation. And I agree I, with that. I feel like The Last Lion is finally a biography uh-huh. that is big enough for who Churchill was. The language is grand enough. The themes and the personality is captured well enough. So I would pick The Last that Lion by well said. William Manchester. Number three, I would take W.S. Plumer's commentary on the Psalms. Mm. So this is a volume put out by Banner of Truth. Uh, Plumer is kind of a uh, an old, unknown scholar to most people, but his exposition of the Psalms is masterful. So he goes through the text. He makes observations on the verses, but his application section is everything you need to apply the Psalms. I mean, if you're teaching mm-hmm. it, if you're studying, and I did my quiet times through the Psalms with Plumer's commentary, I read through the whole thing a couple of years ago, and it was life changing. It's something I want to do again. So if I'm on this desert island, I want to I want to take that, I want to study that, I want to uh, have that with me. Book number four, I would love to take, and, and this is just one that I'm I'm I like right now. I hope I like it on this desert island, but I would take Peter Lightheart's two-volume Revelation commentary. I completely understand that. You could spend years thinking about that. And his his method of of exegeting the text is just so unique. I mean, he's a big um, allegory guy. He's a big um, symbols and parallels and types and antitypes and. I've just so enjoyed the fact that when you read him, and you can read him on anything, I think his his commentary in the Brazos series on First and Second Kings is this way too. But mm-hmm. when you read him, you read your whole Bible through whatever text you're currently reading. So you know, one of I'll just give an example. One of his things in the Book of Revelation is you take the first seven letters to the seven churches, and uh-huh. he reads those as images of the epics of the history of Israel. Right. So whether that's the way that they, you know, coincide with the feasts or with the Canaanite conquest or with the Exodus. I mean, you're reading your Old Testament through the lens. I mean, 
His his specialty is probably the temple more than anything else. I mean, he he is an expert on the Levitical code, the building of the temple, temple worship. I mean, just brilliant insights into the way the imagery of of the book of Revelation captures the rest of the Bible and what it means for us today. So I would be studying that. I would I would really enjoy that. Last, see, this is hard because I I really would have picked Spurgeon as my fifth one, but probably I'm going to need some just something to enjoy uh-huh. on this something a little bit lighter. So I'm going to take the Harry Potter series uh-huh. as my fifth book or fifth set of books on this island. I feel like alone on a desert island, I would be just fine if I had Harry, Ron, and Hermione as my best friends and as my companions on this island. So that, that those would be the five that I would take. You know, that's really interesting that you've got these two epics. I'm stretching that for Harry Potter a little bit. But basically, you've got Lord of the Rings, this fictional world and story. You have Harry Potter, which is, by all accounts, truly, just a great story. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two pieces of fiction. What's the big difference between those two? You know, there's there's some good articles that have been published about the similarity between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And in some ways, Harry Potter is a takeoff. I mean, it's different. It's a very different universe. But right. it's a takeoff on the style and the mechanisms of the Lord of the Rings. And if, yes. if you had, if you were trying to write the Lord of the Rings... But you were not a philologist, yes. and you didn't know anything about <laughs> ancient history, right. and you didn't know anything about medieval culture. You would write something like, like Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Now, and I'm not trying to take anything away from from J.K. Rowling at all. Like she, she's a phenomenal writer. She's a great storyteller. Great storyteller. But you know, there's just all these connections. Like if you think about the the major plot devices, the major characters. I mean, probably the most the most obvious one is. If you think about Gandalf and Dumbledore, there yes. are a, oh, lot a lot of, of similarities. Yes. There's the self-sacrifice. Well, the, there's the as plan. As you talked a minute ago, the secret plan. Yes. I at, mean, working things according to their you know exactly. behind-the-scenes purposes. But even even down to things like you know Shelob in Lord of the Rings and then the gigantic spider yes. that they have in, in Harry Potter. Harry yes, Potter. I mean, exactly. there's, there's a lot of things that are very similar in the way that, that they were. But I would say overall, you know, J.K. Rowling is a better storyteller. She's she's more endearing. Yes. Lord of the Rings is more magisterial. It right. is it's a it's a more complete universe. It's a it's a it has a more ancient feel to it. But you don't leave the Lord of the Rings feeling like the characters are your friends. You respect them, you learn from them, you admire them. You put down that last book of Harry Potter, and you feel like you yes. you just somebody just moved out of town or something, right? Like, your, and you're your never friend, your best friend just moved out of town. You're never going to see your friends again. I mean, that's the effect she has as a storyteller, and I think that's pretty fascinating. Well, one last thing. I know we've gone on a little while, but I want to get your take on this. I have this working hypothesis. I have not tested it fully, but there are great books. There are great stories. But the ones like Harry Potter and the ones like Lord of the Rings that are enduring, I believe Harry Potter stories will be enduring. The ones that are enduring are enduring precisely because they identify and they lift up what we most aspire to in humanity. 
And that's why I think they have links with the biblical story is in the Lord of the Rings and you see similarly in Harry Potter is the ideas of loyalty and faithfulness and truth and beauty get lifted up even though we don't always achieve it. Those are the ideals to which we aspire. And I think that's what makes stories that endure. I agree. I, one of the most interesting things on Lord of the Rings that I've come across is when the first Lord of the Rings came out, C.S. Lewis, friends with Tolkien, did a review of The Fellowship of the Ring. And in the review, he, he makes a great distinction between you know, a typical story and an epic. And what an epic does, or you know, the way that the scale of The Lord of the Rings plays out, is it takes the best and the worst of humanity and it amplifies them. Right in in this world that Tolkien created. So sure enough, you have the best of integrity, but you also have the worst of greed and yes. corruption and evil. Harry Potter does that to an extent. Mm-hmm. You know, there one of the things I like about Harry Potter that you don't see in in a lot of series and TV shows and movies today is it's pretty clear in Harry Potter what's good and what is evil it's not a morally confusing universe right it's a fairly morally morally clear universe but the characters are realistic and so that's really the tension there is all it's it's easy to tell a story where right is right and wrong is wrong but they're usually boring right it's also easy to make a morally nebulous universe where the characters are identifiable because they're exactly like the people you know What's really difficult, and what I admire a lot about the Harry Potter novels, is there is a morally clear universe that is relatable and fascinating at the same time. Well, thanks for listening to another So We Speak podcast. For more information, go to SoWeSpeak.com. If you like what you've heard, share it or leave us a review on iTunes. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks.